Welcome to Social Efficiencing, a production of Coastal Roots Radio at the University of Guelph. This is our continuing coverage of the impacts of COVID-19 on coastal fisheries and fishing communities. There may be other shocks like this, other sorts of pandemics in our lifetime. We don't really know. Much as you are supposed to practice social distancing, the communal nature of the fishery does not allow that. Some of the people I've spoken with feel a little invisible. Hello, I'm your co-host, Emily D'Souza. I'm joined by... Philip Loring. And I'm Hannah Harrison. If you're new to Coastal Roots, we're an international collaboration of communities, scholars, activists, and others who are interested in supporting the health, resilience, and sustainability of coastal communities around the world. This week, we're departing from our normal discussion of how the pandemic is impacting fishing communities themselves and instead looking at its impacts on fisheries research, something which we've experienced firsthand. A lot of fisheries research involves travel, interaction with people in smaller confined spaces, in-person interviews, and so on. Not surprisingly, research on fisheries, and indeed research in many areas, ground to a halt when shutdowns and social distancing measures started to take place around the world. That's right. In our team alone, we put multiple lines of research on hold, including working with First Nations hatcheries in Georgian Bay, research overseas in the Gambia working on oyster farms, and as Emily can tell you firsthand, research working with members of the local catch network. Definitely. I remember the first version of my research proposal fondly. I had amazing plans to spend long periods of time with fishers on their boats in places like Alaska, British Columbia, and even Hawaii. But alas, just like so many others, we've had to pivot. It has been an interesting challenge, one that we'll be hearing about from a handful of different research teams today. For us and others, the pandemic has forced us to alter our research questions and find new methods to replace the in-person work that we normally rely on. In our case, we saw something of an opportunity. I was lucky enough to be early in my design process, so I was able to pivot to questions about the impact of the pandemic on small-scale fishers. When we started to see a pattern where it was local folks who were able to keep fishing and selling their fish, while larger international operations were deadlocked, we knew that there was a story to tell. So that's becoming a major focus. What is it that's made the sector so resilient? And what can we learn to strengthen our food systems and the seafood industry at large? Right. But we've really needed to rely on our networks to make it happen, like our relationship with the folks at Local Catch. And we've had to rely on technologies like Zoom. We've also had to get creative. In one project, for example, we're using anonymous cell phone location data to show how consumers have switched over to local seafood retailers during this time. Emily, you mentioned that there's been a story to tell, and that, of course, was the motivation behind creating this podcast. We here at Coastal Roots are fortunate that our funding is really flexible and from a funding program in Canada that emphasizes storytelling or what we in science call knowledge mobilization. We knew from the start that Coastal Roots would have a podcast, but at first we didn't really know what that story would be. But when COVID hit, that story became very clear. I don't think that we knew it at the time that we recorded our first or even first four episodes. But over the weeks, it also became clear that podcasting was its own unique and innovative research method. We were learning so much by asking people to share their stories and experiences for a public audience. And we were also learning a lot through the act of crafting and curating the narratives for each week's episode. Now, there is, in fact, a rich tradition in the humanities and social sciences of story as a research method. But I have to say, it snuck up on us. I agree, it did, but it's also been tremendously rewarding to do this work. And we're honestly not the only team that has dealt with challenges and opportunities during COVID. 
In fact, in this episode, we're going to visit with three other fisheries research teams who have recently released preprints or academic articles that are still going through the peer review process, which can take a long time. These papers all shed light on how fisheries and fishermen are coping with COVID-19 and remind us that challenges fall not just to the fishing industry, but also to the science that supports it. Let's talk first with Dr. Sarah Smith, who's a postdoc at Rutgers University. Prior to COVID, Sarah and her team were researching how fishermen were adapting to climate change. But in response to COVID, they initiated a survey about how fishers in the northeastern United States are adapting to the impacts of the pandemic. I'm Sarah Smith. I'm a postdoctoral research associate at Rutgers University in the Department of Human Ecology. My background is in um, fisheries social science. So the work that I am funded to do as a postdoc is to understand fishermen's adaptations to climate change, which um, involves or should involve interviewing fishermen um, about the ways in which they've been adapting to climate change, um, which caused us to, the pandemic caused us to adapt our own research and adapt ourselves in that we weren't able to go out and interview fishermen in person to um, adapt to, at least in the short term, focusing on understanding what the impacts of the pandemic have been to the fishing industry and think about some of the ways in which they've been adapting as well. Our focus is on the Northeast US from Maine through North Carolina. And we focused on that region for a couple of reasons, I guess. One is because that is the region that we were focusing on for other research. So it made sense to overlap our research efforts. Um, Another reason being that this is uh, the region of the country where um, we are based. So the area that we are um, tend to be most familiar with. And also because we where this was also the area of the country where the pandemic hit first and hardest really and had the most uh, immediate impacts to the um, to the fishing industry, at least in terms of things like lockdowns and um, stay-at-home measures, which were more stringent in this part of the country than they were in in other parts of the country at that at the time that we started doing our research. Uh, We also wanted to understand what um, those shifts in behavior might mean for the fish themselves, so for the resource. So were we going to be seeing um, a decrease in fishing pressure like has been documented in um, past events like during wars where um, fishermen have been fighting in war and not gone out fishing? Or were, fish, or were we not going to see those types of effects on the, on the fish stocks? And then we were also interested in understanding what was driving um, fishermen's decisions to fish or not, and what were sort of the major impacts on them. Were they related more to markets and price and challenges with export markets and domestic markets? Or were they related more to social distancing requirements? Um, were there issues elsewhere in the supply chain of fishermen not being able to get um, other supplies that they needed to be able to go out fishing? While this research is interesting unto itself, it also has longer term implications to help the team better understand how the fishing industry responds to global shocks, such as the pandemic, or from their original line of research questions, to climate change. Understanding how the fishermen may adapt to this pandemic and how they respond to this set of circumstances 
gives us some insight into how they respond to other disturbances, which might be longer term stresses like climate change, or there may be other types of sort of short-term disturbances like the economic recession of 12 years ago, an event like that. Um, There may be other shocks like this. There may be other sorts of um, pandemics in our lifetime. We, We don't really know. Sarah's team identified some key findings about fishing patterns throughout the pandemic and highlighted some interesting points about resilience further down the seafood supply chain. So we were asking about the period of time from the start of the pandemic to when we had distributed the survey. So basically the spring of 2020, of the fishermen that we surveyed, 59% of them had been fishing during that time. And we then paired that finding um, with data on landings. And so we saw that for some species, the landings were more or less on track with where they had been over the last five years. Whereas for other species, um, there was a significant decline. Now we expected, I think, to see that for most species, the landings would be a lot lower. So we were somewhat surprised to see that for some stocks, landings were more or less on track with where they had been. The species for which we looked at landings um, included some white, many of them were sort of whitefish species, um, cod, haddock, um, summer flounder, And um, for those species, I think that there's reason to believe that the market may not have been affected quite as badly because those are things that maybe people are more comfortable with cooking at home um, rather than species for which there's a significant export market like scallops and monkfish for which um, landings were down significantly. So another component I should say that we found looking at the landings data is that although landings may be in some cases on par with where they've been in the past, prices are way down. Um, So fishermen are clearly not making as much money and prices are down um, for all this, for all the species that we looked at, prices were down, um, you know, in some cases by 30 or 40%. We also asked about fishermen's incomes um, since the start of the pandemic and, you know, pretty much universally, they said that they had lost money and they were making a lot less money than they had in the past, in some cases by a small amount, in many cases by, you know, by a significant margin. We suggested in the paper that fishermen are, you know, perhaps fishing in order to be able to make payments on their boats, to be able to pay their crew, um, and that continuing to go fishing and continuing their livelihood Um, you know, and gives them the option to continue to pursue this livelihood in the future. Now let's hop across the Atlantic and visit a team of researchers in Ghana, a country in West Africa that is home to many marine artisanal and small-scale fisheries. A few weeks ago, I spoke to Dr. Isaac Okere and Mr. Bernard Ikuma, both at the University of Cape Coast, and to their co-author, Dr. Raymond Babanawo at the University of Rhode Island, who together with a larger team of authors, recently released a study using remote sensing to study crowding in Ghana's artisanal fisheries and how those crowds might be impacted by COVID-19. The artisanal fishing in Ghana is uh, communal in perspective. The fishing, the landing, the, the transport, the processing is communal. A lot of people come together to to be engaged in this activity, 
and a type of fish that is harvested. We have herring, anchovies, uh, uh, mackerel. The a small scale because um, they normally use canoes that are either motorized or not motorized. They go out for fishing, they come back uh, with uh, their harvest. So um, the process involves a lot of uh, people coming together too. So it's, it has implication for the COVID because they are supposed to practice social distancing and yet the very nature of the process bring people together. That is the, the irony or the, uh, the challenge that the, the, the process poses to preventing the disease. So this uh, research that was undertaken is extremely important. Much as they are supposed to practice social distancing, they are <laughs> the communal nature of the fishery does not allow that. When, when we're discussing the research, we're looking out for an approach that will not, will not interact with a lot of people because of the COVID situation. So we, we thought it wise that we could use um, UAV, that is um, on man area vehicle, that's usually called drone, to take area shots of the, the, the fishes and use remote sensing um, techniques to assess the, the, the distance between, between them. So practically the use of remote sensing or UAV in, in, in the research was basically to avoid um, interaction with, with, with the fisher force. So here, Isaac is saying that the findings from his team highlighted that, like with regular agricultural markets, the landings beaches where people are bringing in their fish also needed some interventions to help manage the spread of COVID. For example, managing the entry or exit of vessels and other measures that help spread people out. So indeed, our work was more like a, a rapid assessment to, to, to assess what is the situation at the land, landing beaches. And I think after our work, we have seen some level of response along the coast. These findings have also gained attention from the Sustainable Fisheries Management Project and from USAID, who have now taken steps to implement sanitation stations along the coast where fishing folks might access them. Here's Raymond again. And then we also trained um, what we call the site advocates, people from the fishing communities to uh, be responsible for hand washing facilities that we installed along the coast. And then these people were providing additional education and information to fishers to be um, practicing social distancing, use their nose masks. As I already explained earlier, the communal nature of um, fishing, especially the small pelagics, uh, it's it, it made it difficult for people to practice their social distances, but at least they were able to practice uh, use nose masks and also uh, wash their hands regularly. Now it's worth taking a moment to understand that COVID-19 has been playing out in Ghana quite differently than it has in the United States or in Europe. Overall, the infection level in Ghana has been much lower. Fortunately, the impact had not been so severe as compared to what we saw on television in the developed countries especially in the US and, uh, and Europe, UK, Italy. We have had, uh, I think, very few deaths um, uh, as compared to the recovery. Uh, we have uh, no, quite a proportion of people who got infected, uh, very few people who got infected recovered quickly. 
Uh, and there also, um, I think the education and then awareness cohesion, especially among the features, also helped in, um, in, in, a, in, in preventing the spread, infection and spread of the disease. So I think to a large extent, um, the proactiveness towards uh, informing people, uh, educating the symptoms, the, um, the mode of transmission uh, helped in putting people um, ahead, uh, to be ahead of uh, the, uh, the, the, the spread or the, the, this is the infection. So basically, I think that um, the research was very uh, timely or very opportune. And then the design of intervention was also helpful. Finally, their study did one other important thing. It expanded the use of unmanned aerial vehicles into new realms within small-scale and artisanal Ghanaian fisheries. This is important because sometimes research isn't just about the topic you're studying, but also the methods by which you study it. I'll let Bernard explain. We now have a lot of potentials in using remote sensing approaches in, 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 in studying um, artisanal fisheries. And so before that, all what we were doing in terms of remote sensing were, was using the remote sensing tools to analyze or assess environmental or uh, natural environment. But now we realize that we could also um, use it in studying um, the, the fishing industry, especially the artisanal fishing industry, because sometimes it's very difficult to go in there to monitor some activity that's a, that are illegal. So for, for, for you to send a drone over them and monitor what they are doing, uh, you could achieve a lot with that. Let's wrap up with one more story from where we began, the fisheries of New England and the Northeastern United States. Here, we talked to two researchers, Dr. Julie Sorensen and Dr. Rebecca Weil at the Northeast Center for Occupational Health and Safety. While on its face, this may not sound like a very fisheries-focused institute, their research is critical to the well-being of fishermen everywhere. My name is Julie Sorensen. I'm the director of the Northeast Center for Occupational Health and Safety. And I'm Rebecca Weil, and I work with Julie uh, with commercial fishermen as a research coordinator, and I've been working with um, mostly lobstermen in Maine and Massachusetts on looking at life jacket use and helping support fishermen in finding uh, life jackets that are easier to work in and easier to wear. So we have a, a, a wide spectrum of things that we do within one organization. And, and the good thing about that is it's easier to, um, to get evidence-based solutions into practice because we run the spectrum from developing those solutions with communities to training those communities to implement those solutions to then getting feedback about, you know, how that's working or not working in practice and then fixing those problems. As with many research teams, Julie and Rebecca have faced problems with data collection because of COVID. While this has slowed some of their research, they've been able to work with their networks to understand how COVID has impacted fisheries with respect to their health and safety. They recently released a paper that summarized many of the discussions and stories that they've been hearing through those research partnerships. What we want to see is how has COVID impacted their health? How has it uh, impacted the, you know, their economic um, horizon? How, how have they changed what they do and how they do it? But 
of course, we all know um, everything impacts your health and your safety, right? Economics, uh, you know, social ties, the environment, all of these things impact your health. So even though we were looking at, you know, how has COVID impacted health and safety, we really looked expansively at the various things that the pandemic had um, affected and, and how those lead into health and safety issues. We heard a lot about stress from people. Um, quite a lot of people spoke about changes in um, the economics of being able to pay the mortgages off on their boats or you know, on their house, um, being able to make their payments for their expenses when, uh, as we all saw for a while, there was really a, a shuttering of the sales to uh, exports and restaurants where such a bulk of, of fish you know, are sold. It does sound like more and more people are starting to cook some fish at home now. So maybe that's a, an interesting change that's starting to happen as people get more used to this. But I think in the very beginning, it was unclear if that would happen. And difficulty even finding crews. Some people spoke about having crew that were getting some government subsidies and then less interested in working on the boat. So it raised a question for us is whether that would be an increased safety uh, concern if people were fishing perhaps longer hours to make up some of the economic um, problems that were happening, but perhaps even fishing with fewer crew um, that would raise uh, sort of a cascade of safety possibilities. Rebecca also talked about one of the main topics of this podcast, the transition to direct marketing and sales of seafood. While many folks we've talked to have described that direct marketing transition as an important opportunity during COVID, Rebecca echoed concerns we've heard in previous episodes about direct sales being hard on fishermen. Fishermen were experiencing the pressures of the economic change and all the uncertainty. And in trying to respond to that, some of the things sounded really exciting when they started, like people selling off the back of their boat or out of their pickup truck and creating sort of a new business with their community and having long lines of community members there buying their product, which sounds very exciting on the surface, but it also has a side effect of increasing the workday. So you now have a fisherman who's been out fishing all day, and then they have to turn around and stand there and, and sell off their boat or out of their pickup truck. So something that was already a long day turned into a longer day. Julie and Rebecca also heard evidence that the economic stresses caused by COVID-19 have created the need for difficult trade-offs around health and safety. You know, when you think about economic hardship, what, you know, what can go, right? So you can't cut corners on the things that you need to get out there and get your fish, right? Because that's what's gonna keep you financially um, solvent. So probably the thing you're gonna cut corners on are, is safety, right? You're gonna take your chances and focus what money, limited money you have on, you know, trying to make sure that you can continue to have a product that you can sell. And it was interesting because we, one of the folks we reached out to was um, Ted Harrington from the uh, US Coast Guard. And he had said under normal conditions about 10% of vessels uh, that are boarded have a violation. But um, since the COVID crisis, that number has risen to 30%. You know, safety trainings, all the drill conductor and safety trainings that usually happen all the time with big groups constantly, those couldn't happen. And now they're just starting to happen again. Um, I think the Coast Guard thought they had dropped by 93% uh, when this started. Uh, what I'm hearing from MC and folks at Fishing Partnership Support Services and others that are doing safety trainings, 
they're adding them back in, but they have to do sort of pods, little groups from people on the same boat or just a family group, uh, things like that to try and make it small groups and as safe as possible. But I think it's been quite challenging to make sure that those very crucial uh, classes are able to happen. One thing that struck me about listening to Julia and Rebecca is that they're hearing many of the same things that we're hearing when we interview people for this podcast. Though every fishery is unique in its context, the problems raised by COVID-19 are shared across geographies, species, and even gear. And yet, broad solutions like funding or aid packages don't always fit every fisherman well. I think the takeaway message uh, from what we gathered talking to our partners um, was that things were bad before COVID and they're much worse now. And you know, one of the things that we talk about at the end of our summary is that, you know, there was such a rush to, to provide COVID relief packages and programs and things like that. But very often those programs are developed for the general populace. And so the solutions that are developed for the general populace don't always fit well with fishermen. We'll leave you now with a few final thoughts from Julie and Rebecca, who finished our conversation by touching on the underlying reasons that fishing is so critical to our society. Certainly some of the people I've spoken with feel a little invisible, you know, that, that a lot of attention goes to other areas of the general population in situations like this and that fishermen get forgotten. So I think that part of just remembering that this is a whole place where food comes from and People are working awfully hard to bring it to their table. And so it's a change in our thought patterns of valuing our food and valuing the people, whether it be a farmer or a fisherman who raise our food and understanding the dynamics of where it all comes from, how it gets to us, who are the people behind it and how hard they're working in their different situations, whether it be a blueberry farmer or a lobsterman or a salmon fisherman, but they each have different challenges in their work. But I think often, and this is just a bigger piece that I think we all feel is our food often is taken for granted and looking at the processes that go behind it all and the people that go behind it all is very, very important, especially right now. So we can safeguard um, a good, strong um, community of people able to raise or catch our food and, and, and get it to our tables. You know, it makes me think of the Sir Walter Scott quote, it's not fish you're buying, it's men's lives and women's. <laughs> but I think that that kind of sums it up. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about any of the research you've heard about in this episode, you can find links to each study in the online description. Our biggest thanks goes out to all the researchers whose work contributed to these studies. Social Fish Dancing is a production of Coastal Roots Radio at the University of Guelph. We will be bringing you the voices and stories of small-scale fishermen and women from around North America and beyond for the foreseeable future of the COVID-19 pandemic. These interviews and episodes are being recorded week to week, and we aim to bring you a new one every other Tuesday. 
to connect with the people you've heard on this podcast, including the researchers, visit us on the Coastal Roots website at www.coastalroots.org. If you'd like to share your story with us, then we hope that you will. Send an email to stories at coastalroots.org. Coastal Roots Radio is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Errol Food Institute at the University of Guelph, and the Meopar Network. We also receive support from the American Anthropological Association and the Local Catch Network. Today, we heard from Dr. Sarah Smith, Dr. Isaac Okere, Dr. Bernard Ikuma, Dr. Raymond Babanowo, Dr. Julie Sorensen, and Dr. Rebecca Weil. You're listening to The Road That Burned Our Boots by Jezar, available for free on the Free Music Archive. See you next time.